Coming back here to Matthew 10, I so appreciate Josh's apt uh, ability to preach last week, especially on somewhat of a short notice uh, that I was not going to be available in uh, taking us uh, to Philippians 1. And I woke up at noon that day and promptly listened to the message, so appreciated that being available online. Uh, so we come back here to Matthew 10, though, and, and Matthew 10, as, as Matthew organizes the teachings of Jesus, uh, many of the chapters of Matthew are almost like a compilation of a systematic theology of Jesus' teachings. And so when we were here in Matthew 10 uh, two weeks ago, Jesus was instructing his disciples on their Galilean ministry proclaiming the kingdom of God to go to the children of Israel in the Galilee area. And, and here, the teaching, the, the, the instruction from Jesus kind of shifts more to a global focus and also to a lot of what it will be um, confronting them and confronting his followers uh, throughout the centuries, uh, even into describing some of what will be uh, dealt with, I believe, in the tribulation time. And so we don't necessarily know that Jesus um, stepped directly from what he was talking about in verse 15 into what he was talking about in verse 16, or if Matthew chose to kind of group what is talked about in our passage here this morning next to what uh, Jesus' instruction in uh, to his disciples regarding their Galilean ministry. I hope I'm not confusing you here, but this is just the way that Matthew chose and the Holy Spirit inspired him to organize uh, the gospel there. It's more of like a each section is a compilation of Jesus' teachings on a subject. I think you'll understand a little bit of what I'm talking about here. Jesus is preparing his disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God and also from what, for what they should expect in terms of response. And this preparation is certainly applicable for Jesus' followers um, in, uh, for uh, every age. And we come to this um, as God's perfect work in an imperfect world. God still carrying out his plan even amidst the imperfection, and the, the um, increasing resistance and hostility uh, in the world that his followers find themselves in. I, I, it, I would even call this God's perfecting work in an imperfect world because his work is also for the purpose of perfecting us as followers of Christ. I did a little uh, search online for people's thoughts about what would a perfect world involve? What, what, what would it be like if they were to say, in a perfect world, there would be? And one person's kind of cynical response, I don't know if they're an environmentalist or something like that, but they said, a perfect world would involve less humans. I'm like, wow, that's really cynical. Which ones? You know, what if, what if you were the one of the ones uh, that should be fewer of? But another person commented that a perfect world is an impossibility. 
And they were referencing the fact that everyone's definition of a perfect world would be different. He said, uh, think of it. Bob down the street thinks the perfect world would include riding his Harley around, making huge amounts of noise, and being admired by everyone. While I think a perfect world would be one in which others don't make any noise and bother me. You know, so we've got to share this world. So what would be involved in a perfect world? Uh, much of what we have seen over the last century, and it, we've already seen it um, intensified in the 21st century, is um, when people don't know that God has a plan for this world, very often they're looking for the perfect world. They're looking for a definition of utopia. And when they run into other people's definitions of what the world should be like, um, the last century showed us that it becomes murderous, that so many millions of people were actually slaughtered in the name of, we've got to, if we don't get rid of these people, we'll never reach that perfect world that we were looking for. The beauty of what we are instructed here today in the scriptures is that even as the world is more and more imperfect, God's perfect plan is still able to be carried out. In this morning's passage, Jesus warns his apostles that his, he's sending them into an imperfect world. It would be just as to be an uh, not just an imperfect world, but a hostile world, hostile to the gospel. It would be hostile to the message of the gospel that Christ's kingdom had come, the Messiah had finally arrived, and therefore hostile to his apostles that he was sending out with this specific message. And amidst all the hostility, God's perfect plan of redemption will be accomplished. And that perfect plan includes the perfecting work of God in his people. Turning back to Matthew 10 here, we pick up in verse 16, and we're going through verse 25 here this morning. We read Jesus' teaching, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So, so these are Jesus' top followers. These are of, of among all of his many disciples. He chooses these 12 and declares them to be apostles and gives them authority um, for, to, uh, for authenticating signs if you recall, for that, that their message is from God. These are his gold star right-hand men, and they're not promised some sort of fringe benefits, right? We're not talking, they're not talked into service here with the promise of a corner office or some posh retirement plan, unless you think of eternity. They were equipped with the hard facts of what it meant to represent Jesus in this world. 
And Jesus goes on to describe some of the worst conditions that the lost world could resort to. Verse 21, we read, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, meaning, meaning a, a, a child who is an unbeliever would, would turn in a, their believing parent, even if it meant that parent would be put to death because of that. And then he goes on to say, when they persecute you in one town, oh, I'm sorry, and you will be hated, verse 22, by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. As he typically would do, Jesus reassures his followers that none of this takes him by surprise. None of this takes God by surprise. We read in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they, mal- how much more will they malign those of his household? So in this situation, Jesus is the master. His disciples, his followers are the servants. And he's saying, listen, if they treat the master this way, What makes you think they're not going to treat his servant in the same way? If they called Jesus, if they described Jesus as doing the work of the devil, called here Beelzebub, how much more are they not going to malign his followers and their work? Persecution for Christ's sake can actually be a great source of assurance that we're doing something right even. And we'll see that here this morning. You know, I, I read about two prisoners that were shackled to a wall in a deep, dark dungeon. One had obviously been there longer than the other. And they're, they're securely attached to the wall, hanging suspended side by side above the damp floor of the dungeon. And there's only one small window, probably 40 feet up off the ground. It's too small for anyone to shimmy through, of course if they could reach to it. They're immobile and alone and pinned inescapably to the wall. And the more recent prisoner, the one who could talk, turns to the other one and whispers, okay, here's my plan. That is one optimistic prisoner. When a person receives Christ as their Savior and Lord, their mission commander, they become a part of God's greater plan. It's the plan that the whole world was created to accomplish. The whole world was created to accomplish God's plan of bringing glory to God, its creator. But different than this very optimistic prisoner, God's plan will always be accomplished. No matter the circumstances. It will always result in the Christian being saved, delivered. And I'll explain what I mean by that, that that the term saved in its broader sense means to be delivered in the end. But it might not be a process that we might have designed if it were up to you. 
in the midst of our crazy changing world, I want to encourage you to trust God's plan when the world is breaking. Trust God's plan when the world is breaking. They're told that they're going to be sheep in the midst of wolves. They're going to be vulnerable. They're going to need wisdom to be, um, and yet be innocent. And notice he says, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, for my glory, for, for to accomplish what I have for you to accomplish there. And then there's the promise of relationship amidst it all. What you need to say will be given to you in that hour. I think the first idea that we are focusing on here this morning feels more real in a world that drifts further from biblical values. The, the redefinition of right and wrong. And we need wisdom in, to know how to respond to the progressive acceptance of sin in our culture. We need guidance to deal with the temptation to justify our own sin that comes with that. As sheep amidst wolves, Jesus didn't envision his followers as being a power group in the world. He didn't envision his followers as having um, some sort of political strength in this world. Not to say it's wrong, when that's the case, our physical defense we see here is being entrusted to the Lord. I appreciate what Mike shared. You know, even, even as a gun owner, it's important to realize my safety is in the Lord's hands. We are called to be shrewd and wise according to God's truth and innocent in what is worldly. And sinful. The a command here is beware of men. Even well meaning unbelievers will fail to grasp the truth. We see today how we're expected to be quiet about the truth when the, when the truth might rebuke a lifestyle of sin. In many instances, the situation is twisted to where sharing the truth is actually considered harmful is actually considered hurtful and abusive. It might seem odd to hear this, but we can take comfort in this fact. God's truth does not require our freedom. God's truth does not require our freedom. God's plan will be accomplished even amidst a broken justice system. That's what we see in verse 17. They'll deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake and bear witness before them in the Gentiles. We see in verses 19 and 20 that, that greater persecution actually amounted to a greater promise of God's presence. I remember this even as a young child when my dad was arrested for being a part of a peaceful protest not a mostly peaceful process, this was peaceful, uh, of sitting in front of an abortion clinic. And they were arrested, and they were going to stand before the judge, 
And I remember my mom saying, I'm praying that God will give your father the words to say when he needs it. That made a huge impact on me as a young man. Jesus warns his followers that it's often not easy to be his witnesses. It's often difficult. Even amidst the most broken sense of right and wrong, when Christians are vulnerable to persecution, completely dependent on the protection of their shepherd as his sheep, and completely dependent on God's wisdom for guidance. That's where we can find ourselves overnight. Rather than being surprised and put off balance, we can trust God's plan for Christ's glory. Even when we we come to the threat of losing our freedom, victory can still be found in bringing glory to Christ. That is true freedom. And we needn't be anxious about what we should say because the Holy Spirit can give us the right words to bring glory to Christ when we need it. These are the promises here. And continuing on with the encouragement to trust God's plan when the world is breaking, we read in verse 21 through 23 as we read before, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all. And notice again, God's plan is still there for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Whether it be the, the instance of that their ministry, these apostles' ministry would continue on <clears throat> until Jesus' resurrection and ascension, or the further application of to the entire world, that, that there will not be an end to the opportunity to share the gospel before Jesus returns. That's kind of how Jesus' predictions of these things work. There's usually like a now and the future and a near future and a far future. It's kind of how you have to take it. But I want to say this too, in accordance with trusting God's plan, When the world is breaking, enduring persecution gives assurance. Enduring persecution gives assurance of our salvation. Now, I mentioned a little bit here before when he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. We kind of have this default with the term saved that means will come into a saving relationship with Christ. And we hear, will be saved, and we think it's kind of like, okay, so that will, will, the person will come into a saving relationship with Christ in the future. But the term saved in its general sense means to be delivered, all right? So if, if a firefighter shows up and a person is trapped in a, an automobile and the person looks at the firefighter and says, please save me, firefighter's not going to look at him and say, I can't save you, only Jesus can. You know, he knows the person is saying, deliver me. In the same way, if a Christian is in the middle of a natural disaster and they pray, Father, save me. God's not saying, I already saved you. You know, the idea is, deliver me. Even beyond that eternal salvation. In fact, when we pray, come Lord Jesus. 
In a real sense, we're saying, come and save us. It is an aspect of our eternal salvation, which has already been accomplished, but there is a future deliverance component of that. And that's what's being referenced here when it talks about they will be saved. Eternal salvation results in a future salvation or deliverance. And God's plan to save his people will still be in effect even in the greatest examples of our broken society. And these kinds of responses in our verses will be especially experienced, I believe, during the future tribulation period. But certainly we see some Christians have gone through and are going through this in, say, communist countries or totalitarian states. This happens when a totalitarian state refuses to allow their people to worship anything but the state. That's what makes them a totalitarian state. Total control. And people turn in their Christian relatives even out of fear that knowing that they're of, of their relatives' faith in Christ would somehow make them guilty by association. So what I'm saying is this brother will turn in brother, will turn against brother. That, that is something that I believe Jesus, it could be very, it will be in its purest form in the tribulation period. But brothers and sisters in Christ in totalitarian regimes are already experiencing this sort of thing in the world today. Even in the, the tragic circumstances like family members turning against God's people, these can bring glory to the name of Christ. It can all be accomplished for his sake, for the sake of his glory. Our deliverance is not a, a protection from persecution, but it will come maybe after enduring persecution. And as verse 23 tells us, God's people will not be snuffed out. They will not run out of places to live, places to go. God's people are also expected to continue to go and share wherever there's a village that will listen. And that's an encouragement that Jesus gives them. Don't worry, you won't run out of work to do. So, so where am I coming up with this statement? Enduring persecution gives assurance. Where he says here, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In contrast with the most grieving and dismal of persecution, Christians can take heart. We can take heart in Christ. The Christian's endurance is evidence of our ultimate deliverance that we will experience. In Romans 5, the same is basically said in the relationship of suffering and the character growth that, that, that a believer experiences through suffering and that leading to assurance or, or hope that they truly have a relationship with God. In Romans 5, <clears throat> verse 3, it says, uh, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces Endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, suffering for a follower of Christ allows them to see themselves growing in character and growing in endurance. And that, looking at their life and how suffering draws them to Christ and, and they actually treasure Christ more and more through it, provides with hope because it's like, wow, 
the Holy Spirit is really there within me. I'm really going to be with God in eternity. So I'm saying in the same way that Romans 5 talks about suffering leading to hope and assurance, endurance of persecution, and yet still claiming Christ as our Savior, it, it, it is evidence that we will truly be delivered in the end. The Apostle John explained people who called themselves Christians but stopped claiming Christ as their Savior and Lord. And certainly there is a warning I share this because there is a warning in our passage here that those who fall away from allegiance to Christ shows that they were never truly his to begin with. In other words, those who do not endure still claiming Christ should not expect deliverance. The Apostle John explains this in this way when he says in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, you can say they, they turned away from Christ, they, they no longer endured, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. In other words, they were not one of us in the first place, and that's why they left. John MacArthur says, those who do fall away from Christ give conclusive proof that they were never truly believers to begin with. The idea of people being considered a Christian when their lives show no fruit of perseverance, this idea is foreign to Christ's teachings. This idea is foreign to the idea that when we receive Jesus as our Savior, we receive him as Savior and Lord. If there's anything that persecution does provide the opportunity for is to allow those who follow Christ as their Savior to have a sense of assurance because of the perseverance of their faith. And sadly, for teachers to make people think that a relationship with Christ is going to make only make their lives easier, this may set people up, their hearers, for never truly meeting Christ in the first place. Because they're not describing the Christ of the Bible. Christ didn't come to make us healthy and wealthy. So trust God's plan when the world is breaking. And even if it doesn't mean total freedom. And knowing that hard times means that our endurance should provide us with an assurance of salvation. You know, we've seen reflections of satanic hatred in the anti-Semitic rallies around the world. And I think there's probably a difference between someone calling for, for well-treatment of Palestinian Arabs in Gaza and an anti-Semitic call for from the, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which basically means free of Jewish people from Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea. I think they, there can be a difference there. But we see reflections of satanic hatred in the anti-Semitic rallies around the world. You know, uh, Pastor Jeff, we were talking um, on uh, uh, Friday night, and, and he said he was kind of, 
people were asking him, okay, so how do I discuss the place of Israel and why they should be supported and things like that with this friend on Facebook? And, and he was asking him a few questions. He says, well, the person's an atheist. And he said, forget it. And why is that? It's because our reasons come from God's promises. Our reasons come from God's covenant. The facts are this. Israel's right to the land are a matter of it being given to them by God. That doesn't mean a right to behave however they want. Of course. But also people's hatred for Israel is in line with the devil's attempts to disrupt God's ultimate plan for this world. Some of you might have seen the... the um, response that I wrote on Facebook this past week, but I did just go ahead and print up uh, my answer to the question, why is Israel so often persecuted? And you can find it on the little music stand there in the back. What we see in this situation, what we see on TV, what we hear about in the news, we see in this situation how quickly and radically people can turn militant in their views, how their education can come to the forefront really fast. Supporting terrorism, supporting hostage-taking, supporting murder. In the same way, the devil can work to bring persecution against Christians overnight. And we should not be surprised by it. And we should not be discouraged by it if our hearts are set on God's plan still being accomplished because it can be. It will be. But here's the truth. None of it takes God by surprise. Secondly, we can still glorify God in the midst of persecution. And thirdly, God still has planned for our deliverance according to his timetable. We're going to take a detour here and discuss what, what's considered to be a hard saying of Jesus. We've, co we've covered a lot of it, this, this statement in the second half of verse 22. The one who endures to the end will be saved. It's kind of in a little separate box there um, on the back side of your notes. But I want to clarify something because a, a lot of times this hard saying of Jesus can be twisted. The enemy has a way of twisting God's words ever since the Garden of Eden. And those of you that are in, in small groups and have studied Genesis 3, you know what I'm talking about here. That, that the enemy has been twisting God's words ever since the creation. The, this hard saying of Jesus is letting us know, as I mentioned, that those who are saved will endure in their faith. But Jesus' statements, like I said, can be twisted to cause some people to think that our salvation is dependent on our endurance. That, that is not true. That, that, that is, that is, the, the two should be present, but salvation is not dependent on endurance. Uh, endurance is the result of salvation. It's not the cause of our salvation. It is the result of our salvation. Endurance is not a condition, if you will, of salvation. Like, in other words, it's not saying, if you endure, you will have a relationship with God. I'm just changing that saved there because that's kind of how we think that it's 
that's saved as, as, I, as I've talked about. Endurance isn't a condition of salvation. The only condition for salvation is faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. <clears throat> but I want to show you here uh, something that, that was really neat for me to, to see in my study. Uh, a, a, another verse from Matthew, which that's valuable in, in the Bible study process, if you want to kind of see, okay, what is this author meaning by this grammatical structure? We're going to geek out of here a little bit here, okay? Um, so if you look at Matthew 26, verse 23, you have an identical grammatical structure. Not the identical terms, but the identical grammatical structure where Jesus, in the upper room, at the Last Supper, when John asks him, who is it that will betray you? Because Jesus has alluded to, one of you will betray me. And Jesus' response is, speaking of Judas, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Those two verbs there are in identical grammatical structure to our verse here. Okay, so we would never say that Judas betrayed Jesus because he dipped his hand in the dish. Like dipping his hand in the dish caused Judas to betray Jesus. Obviously, what Jesus is saying is that Je Judas dipped his hand in the dish because he was going to betray Jesus. All right? So with our verse here that we're looking at here this morning, chapter 10, verse 22, the second half, it's not saying we will be saved or delivered because we endure. It's saying we endure because we will be saved and delivered. Now, if you look at that little box when you go home, that's why I kind of laid it out there for you because you can kind of have one of those aha moments, you know, during the sermon and then you go home and you're like, I have no idea what the reasoning, you know, how, what, what, what this had anything to do with it. So I gave you that little box there in your notes that you can kind of look over and see what's being said there. But we endure because we are saved. Another way that we can be a part of God's perfecting work in an imperfect world is to expect hostility when the world is hostile toward Christ. Expect hostility when the world is hostile toward Christ. Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? We'll actually see in chapter 12 of Matthew where the religious leaders will finally say, you know what, the reason why Jesus is able to cast out these demons is because he's doing it by the power of demons. In other words, he's a, like a double agent of the devil here. You know, like somebody saying at a rally, this guy's a fed, you know. It's like, oh, he's, he's one, of, one of the devil's guys. We'll actually see at that point in Matthew that basically Jesus says, all right, I'm only going to teach you in parables. That's how significant that was. When it speaks of Beelzebub, the New Testament dictionary Describes this, uh, this is basically calling Satan the prince of the hostile spirits. 
That's all we need to go into there. The ultimate goal of a disciple of Jesus is to be like Jesus. One writer says, the disciple who has the privilege of sharing Jesus' work and representing him must also expect to share in his unpopularity. We certainly see this with the apostles who later, uh, after Jesus is ascended, and, and they go on to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're arrested and they're, they're beaten for proclaiming Christ as having been crucified and risen from the dead. We read in Acts 5 that they left the presence of the council, this council that had them beaten and, and persecuted and physically harmed. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Christ's name. Saying, wow, well, why would we expect anything different than what our Lord experienced? As well, the Apostle Paul lists off his greatest desires in Philippians 3, and they are that I may know him, being Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and that I may suffer, in, share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Followers of Christ can expect to follow him in his sufferings as well as in his triumph. Why would we think that, that somehow we deserve an easier path than our master and teacher had to walk? I don't know if I, about you, but it's usually when the path is easier that I grow less. If Jesus' ministry was maligned, why not expect that people will try to do the same to ours? You know, I can remember, I, I think I've shared with you before, when I was a little kid, one of my favorite uh, TV shows was Chips. You know, they were Ponch and John, California Highway Patrol officers. What was the coolest thing about that show is they weren't just like these noobs driving out in a car. They drove the motorcycles, right? You know, and cool helmets and weaving in in between traffic and stuff like that. And I had decided that I wanted to be a police officer, Okay. And I wanted to be a motorcycle police officer, but I guess I would settle for driving the car under one requirement. I still got to wear the helmet. That was just my, that was, that was uh, my uh, requirement of uh, being a police officer one day. I don't know where my, you know, John Daniels uh, little 10-year-old thinking was there, but anyways, that's what it was. And, and a lot of times we have that idea, Lord, I will follow you. Just keep it easy. And folks, we have in here a promise that it's when it's hard that we get to see that we're really following him. When we identify with his ill treatment is when we get to see we're really standing out as being identified with Christ. And it's a blessing in the end. I still remember one speaker saying, <clears throat> too many Christians have been taught that if they actually have enough faith in Christ, if they actually have enough faith, they won't actually have to live like Christ. That, that, that if you just have enough faith, your life will be easy. If you just have enough faith, 
you'll be healthy. You just have enough faith. Uh, not only will you always have a roof over your head, it's always just going to get better and better. That's not true. In fact, it keeps us from growing. It's, it's, a, it's a false hope. And it's really not where our hope should be in the first place. Our hope should be in the fact that God's promises are true. We can grow in Christ no matter the circumstances. And more likely we grow better in tougher circumstances. Hebrews 12 talks about Jesus himself, which talked about looking ahead to the cross. The greatest of suffering that anyone could have ever experienced because it wasn't just a, a physical suffering of God's son. It was a spiritual suffering of God's son. He says, and we are called to look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for, joy, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And what I hope you gain from today, from these verses, is the fact that no matter what it is you might go through, because of your following Christ, you can look at it as there's joy on the other side of this. There's blessing on the other side of this. There's a closer walk with Christ on the other side of this. And I appreciate that uh, Kevin and Dawn are going to close us here this morning with the old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That, that even no matter what would come against us, he is our mighty fortress, and his name is what conquers. Let's bow our heads. Lord, you are our refuge and strength, our fortress, a great and present help in time of need. And Lord, you are our assurance. You are our faithful Savior, God. And you are at work with, uh, in us as, with your Holy Spirit. It is your indwelling Holy Spirit and his ministry to us that allows us to know that we truly know Christ. And so, Lord, I pray, my friends, for myself and for my friends here, that when life is hard because we follow Christ, we would find joy in the fact that you told us it would be so. And we can look forward to greater joy on the other side of it because of growth and because of greater assurance of our relationship with you. And Lord, thank you that this isn't dependent on our strength. It's not dependent on our, our might, our power, but it is dependent on your almighty power. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.